and welcome back to the TLDR News Podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and today I'm joined by Zach Michaelis. Hello, hello, and hello. And Rory Taylor. Hello. How are you guys doing? Yeah, very Good. well actually. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, we're obviously discussing our underreported stories of the week. We are talking about the world leader leaderboard, seeing who's winning and who's losing. And our main story today is discussing the latest updates from Ukraine and how that interacts with various geopolitical wranglings. Before we get to any of that though, and Zach reminded you about this when he hosted on Monday, but our newspaper that we were selling at the end of last year, Too Long, is now available at a discounted price. Essentially, we held back a chunk of the newspapers that we'd have enough spares to handle with returns, postage issues, that kind of thing. And now we're confident enough that we have enough sent out that we can start selling those spare ones, essentially. So there is only a really limited quantity left and we're selling them for $5.99. The $3.99. And there's also a digital copy that didn't exist before that is $3.99. Thank you, Zach. Nice, very good. Um, so if you wanted a physical copy, um, didn't get around to it, we have a handful left for $5.99. And if you didn't want a physical one and you prefer a digital copy to keep forever digitally, that's $3.99. Both available on the TLDR website. That's tldrnews.co.uk. Let's get into our underreported stories. Um, Rory, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so mine is a story that is pretty close to my heart because it's something I actually wrote about in a video last year, which was one of the first videos, full videos I wrote when I kind of moved over to being uh, a writer. Yeah. Um, so it's a story from Thailand. And the headline... Um, the recent headline is that the Constitutional Court in Thailand has ruled that attempts by a political party called Move Forward, attempts or calls to amend the country's strict royal insult laws uh, are unconstitutional and mm -hmm. illegal. Um, so the court is saying to the party, you can't call for these laws to be amended because it violates the constitution and if you do, you'll be in trouble. Um, for reference, Thailand has one of the world's strictest royal insult laws um, if you insult the monarchy, uh, you can go up, go to prison for up to 15 years. Wow. And this isn't one of those ones where it's like, yes, technically it's illegal, but no one goes to prison. A lot of people do go to prison and are charged with it. I think the statistic that kind of, it's pretty shocking, since 2020, 262 people have been charged wow. under this law. And there was a man recently who faces up to 50 years in prison because it's up to 15 years per incident mm. um, of insulting the monarchy. So it's pretty horrendous. Um, so... The kind of background to this is that last year at the general election, this this progressive um, reformist party called Move Forward won this surprise victory. Um, and they'd been campaigning uh, on all sorts of things. But one of their main ones was that they would loosen these laws um, mm -hmm. to make it, you know, not illegal to insult the monarchy. Um, and they won the election. They're the largest party, but they failed to form a government because of lots of things. But mainly uh, it was because of the conservative kind of establishment in the Senate that blocked them. But... You know, that's kind of in the past now. Um, but this legal case has been ongoing for quite some time. And the court has said, by calling to change the law on royal insults, you are threatening to overthrow the uh, the constitutional monarchy. Hmm. So I think this is, a, this is an interesting case for two reasons. One is the effect on move forward. Um, technically, they haven't been told to like dissolve as a party, but um, this does open them up to the the risk that they could be told to like disband if they do carry on calling for these changes. But I think more interestingly is that it shows this, that the real power of the, of the monarchy in Thailand, but also possibly the, uh, it, I think basically long term, I think it's a mistake, mm. um, both morally and kind of politically, because if you, if you offer no room for people to say, 
we need to change these laws, then if you don't give them any peaceful method of doing that in the long term, you're, you're kind of really putting yourself at risk of something mm. less than peaceful, let's say. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty big news from Thailand and one worth keeping an eye on. Isn't Thailand also one of those like half democracies? Where, yeah. Like, the Senate is, the seats are guaranteed to like the conservative establishment. Yeah. Yeah. So any time that, you know, elected officials kind of, uh, or like progressive democratically elected officials try and change something, there's all this massive opposition from the various parts of the state. And this is just the latest kind of in that, in that saga. Yeah, it sets it up. I mean, the, the, the constitutional setup just sort of guarantees like interparliamentary conflict, doesn't yeah, it? Because absolutely. like if you've got like a conservative establishment that's guaranteed the control of the Senate and then people keep on electing progressives, you end yeah. up this constant infighting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's a tough one. It's yeah. also the last thing. I, I, I don't think I got this right, but is it the Thai monarch, the one who spends all his time in Germany? Yeah, he's a very, very odd guy. Yeah. Um, okay. With mm. an enormously long name. Yes. And yeah. he's also got lots of like, Fancy little dogs that he takes around with him as well, I think. So, <laughs> nice. yeah, Sounds interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Zach, what's your under report? Okay. Okay. That's exciting. Mic swap. <laughs> oh, good timing. Good. Wow. Oh, wait. That, that's not a test, is this it? Isn't Okay, so what is your underreported story, Zach? So my underreported story is uh, just that Italian Prime Minister Georgia Maloney mm. earlier this week paid a trip to Africa where she was announcing a whole swathe of new investment and development funding, basically aid funding. Um, and the, the sums involved aren't too massive, it's about five and a half billion euros. But I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first is that she very deliberately framed it in sort of contrast the Chinese lending, which, well, she described it, which didn't use the word Chinese, but she just talked about predatory lending. And that's clearly a sort of allusion to this idea that China lends lots of money um, to basically developing countries that can't pay it back. Mm. And then when they go, oh, we can't pay it back, China goes, okay, well, you at least give us your strategically significant assets. So mm-hmm. the example everyone talks about is Sri Lanka, where they borrowed a lot of money from China. China was their biggest single creditor. And then when they couldn't pay it back, China took out a 99-year lease on Hambantota port, which is this deep sea port that can host military vessels um, that, you know, th- and that was basically taken as evidence that the Chinese are sort of deliberately over-lending so mm-hmm. they can sort of coerce developing countries into giving them strategically significant assets on the cheap, basically. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think was, so I think that's really interesting. And I think that this, like, new competition between the West and China for Africa is actually just fundamentally a great thing because it means that we should see more development aid going to Africa. And mm-hmm. if geopolitical competition rather than cooperation is what gets Africa the money it needs for development, I mean, that's fundamentally a good thing as long sure. as you're not, you know, it's a sort of ends versus means thing. Um, but the other thing I thought was interesting about it is that she also tied some of the future funding to immigration. And she basically said that if you do more to stop immigration flowing into Europe, you can have more money. And I think that this is like, this is another example of Maloney sort of charting this new course of like palatable conservatism mm. where she gets to sort of pitch herself domestically as like, you know, strong immigration and very sort of immigration skeptic. But at the like European or the international level, she has this like humanitarian argument where she goes like, well, actually, sure, I'm trying to limit immigration into Italy, but that's, you know, that's not because I have no sympathy for like the needs of the developing world. It's because I think it's better 
um, to make sure that living standards improve in places like Africa and basically developing countries. Um, and I think that is like a sort of like, it's a morally palatable form of mm. immigration skepticism. Um, and I think that's interesting both because it's, it's, it's probably, I think, where the EU will end up going in terms of immigration politics and policy in the next few years. And also because it's yet another example of Maloney playing quite, I think, a clever political positioning game where she manages to sort of maintain her conservative edge, but at the same time, like, appeal um, or sort of appear even, like, palatable to the international community. Interesting. Thank you. Two very good underreported <laughs> stories, wow. as always. Um, let's now move on to the main part of the podcast. Um, let's talk about Ukraine, because... We've obviously spoken a lot about Ukraine over the last kind of couple of years. It yeah. was a major news story. It is still a major news story, but one that gets less attention and one that we've discussed less. Um, but there have been some interesting developments in recent weeks that we thought are worth addressing. Um, and there's various things we want to talk about. Most of them bad, right, for Ukraine. Yeah, I We've think so. got issues on the battlefield. We've got kind of political issues for Zelensky domestically and internationally. It's generally not a great picture, and it's kind of hard to know where to start. So which of those elements of troubles do we want to start with? Well, I think the thing that's in the headlines at the moment is this story about the Ukrainian like land forces commander, um, Valery Zeluzhny, mm. um, and uh, President Zelensky. Um, and there have been reports of like simmering tensions between the two for a while now. I think... Some of that is that, that disagreement originates in a disagreement over strategy on the battlefield. I think apparently Zelensky was keen on, for example, like committing troops to Bakhmut than Zeluzhny was. Mm. And Zeluzhny is widely credited with the successful defense of Kiev in the early days of the war um, and the uh, Kharkiv counteroffensive in the latter, well, the latter part of whatever it was, 2022. Um, but it spilled out into the public late last year when Zeluzhny gave uh, an interview to The Economist where he described the war as being at a stalemate before Zelensky came out a couple of days later and said, no, no, this is, this is, the war is not a stalemate. We're going to mm. win. I think that also, by the way, speaks to this other difference in sort of like uh, media strategy between the two. And I think Zelensky believes you have to be very, very bullish and very, very enthusiastic and sort mm -hmm. of like gung-ho, whereas I think Zeluzhny thinks that actually that, you know, sets you up for resentment and sort of over-expectations and instead wants perhaps Kiev to be more honest with the Ukrainian public about the state of play in the battlefield. Um, but then more recently, in the last couple of days, um, there were reports about a week ago that Zelensky had asked Zeluzhny to step down. Mm. There were, these were obviously denied originally um, by, by both actually sort of like pro-Ukrainian sources, but then also um, Kiev itself. But then it turns out that, yeah, he was, Zeluzhny was asked to step down but I think quite tellingly, he just said no. So he was originally asked to step down and said, you can at least maybe move to be my defense advisor. Um, but then he just said no. And what's interesting about this is that he's still in post, mm. which either suggests that Zelensky is waiting, but I think more likely it just suggests that Zelensky doesn't have the political power to oust Zeluzhny. Um, Zeluzhny is, according to most polls at the moment, more popular than Zelensky mm. and widely seen as like a potential presidential candidate um, when slash if, uh, these like elections are held and Zelensky has been talking about holding elections for like the past year or so, which is quite weird for a country that's like in a war. Um, and that I think is in part a reaction to the fact that it's one of the things the Republicans have been 
demanding as a condition on Ukrainian aid. I think it was slightly arbitrary. I think Ukraine, the Republicans were trying to come up with some reason to stop giving aid. And they basically said, oh, you know, Ukraine's not a real democracy, or at least some of them did. Yeah. It doesn't hold elections. So that's like, okay, fine, we'll hold elections. Um, but yeah, this is bad news for, for obvious reasons. I mean, partly it's infighting, and infighting is never good, especially not for a country at war. Um, but another thing I think is bad news is I think that infighting and poli domestic politics and talk of elections just makes Ukraine seem like a normal country. Um, it just, it, it makes it, it not, and boring is the wrong word, but it, it Ukraine had a sort of like a, per, a real symbolism to much of the West a couple of years ago. But I think that when the headlines are dominated by sort of like political infighting and you've got talk of old sort of political figures and like Poroshenko coming back into the fray, it just begins to look like a bog standard European political crisis. Um, and I do think that will dent Western enthusiasm or interest, which I think is a bit worrying. Um, but yeah, so that's what's going on at the moment. Um, and I think that comes on top of, again, whether or not you describe it as a stalemate is sort of a, I can contest the topic, but Ukraine has themselves said that they're moving away from sort of offensive actions towards what they describe as active defense, um, which is at least a sort of tacit admission that not much is going to change on the front mm -hmm. lines uh, for the well, for foreseeable future. So, and then the, obviously the, the last, the last thing to say <laughs> is that there's the issue of funding. Um, and the Ukrainian economy has actually held up, I mean, astonishingly well. There's tough, something like a 50% drop in GDP since the war began. But the Ukrainian economy is on track to grow by 5% this year, which is, I mean, that's, that's astonishing. It's a country mm. in wartime. And it's suffered a massive loss of um, just like people by virtue of emigration and obviously the human humanitarian toll of the war. Um, but it's still exporting. Uh, it's found ways around uh, Russia's sort of like assault on the Black Sea. Um, the, the economy in the, the Western part of the country is still functioning, mm. um, but it nonetheless obviously needs just an obscene amount of money to fund its military. Um, I think it requires something like $20 billion in aid last year. Um, and at the moment, there are two aid packages. There's one in America worth $60 billion, which is being held up by essentially Republicans who want to fold it into a wider debate about the border, the southern border in the US. Okay. Republicans basically say that, you, you know, the Biden administration is only going to get its Ukraine aid funding if it agrees to harshening measures on the southern border with Mexico. And then there's this 50 billion multi-year Ukraine facility aid package being debated by the EU, but that's being held up by Viktor Orban. And uh, this podcast will probably come out on Thursday, which is the day that Orban and the other EU leaders are meeting to try and get to try and agree on something. Um, so you probably know more than we do at this, but but even if that goes through, you know that's a four-year package that takes you through to 2027, and that means about 12. Well, I mean, it does mean 12 and a half billion euro a year. That isn't enough alone. Obviously, there are bilateral commitments being made by other EU member states, but actually. The main question is really about the American aid package, and that, that's what the Ukrainians really, really need. Um, so, yeah, all in all, it's, it's not looking particularly rosy for them. I mean, you can overstate these things. Like, it's worth saying that militarily, the Russians are really struggling in Avdivka, which they've been trying to take for ages, and they're mm. losing something like a 1,000 men a day there and barely making progress. Wow. Um, and, you know, the Ukrainian economy, again, as I said, is performing, like, surprisingly well, and things are holding up relatively well. And also, the infighting has... It hasn't led to any sort of collapse or anything. Zelensky is still popular. Polls suggest he's got approval rate about 60%, although, you know, obviously Zelensky is more like 85, 90. Um, 
But yeah, things are definitely not as rosy as they were. And I think what worries well-versed commentators is that you enter a sort of uh, downward spiral because when things are going badly for Ukraine, there's a sense, and I don't think this is a justified sentiment, but there is a sentiment in, in some of the Western public and the political class that like, what's the point in spending more money if it's not going to work? Yeah. And like, obviously that is just like, a, it's, it's almost just like fallacious. Like it doesn't really make sense. Of course, there is still value in spending money even if it's a stalemate, by the way, because you need to spend money to maintain the stalemate. Mm -hmm. And if you cut off funding, then you no longer have a stalemate. You have Russia winning. And also, you know, the, the, the money, the, the, the promise of money will affect Ukraine's negotiating power because if Russia knows that Ukraine is running out of money, then obviously they have far more leverage. So, I mean, that, that argument doesn't really stand up on its, on its, on its own two feet. Um, but there is the worry is that things are getting worse and you're entering a sort of like negative spiral. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's about it, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Myriad issues. Myriad issues, indeed, yeah. Um, Rory, what do you make of this for Ukraine's long-term prospects yeah. and where they sit right now? There were, well, two interesting, well, everything's accepted was interesting, but two <laughs> things that I thought particularly interesting. Okay. One is um, the point about uh, Zeluzhny being more popular than Zelensky, mm -hmm. and I think it's such a difference from the start of the war where there was this huge amount of unity around Zelensky, both within Ukraine and internationally um and as the war has dragged on you know that has diminished and there's these other ukrainian figures like Zeluzhny, but also um vitalik klitschko the mayor of kiev who yeah, he has also feuded with zelensky yeah. in the i past. can't remember what the quote was but no, was, i can't remember either yeah, he, says, he says something quite explicitly yeah. to zelensky and so you start to see these other figures kind of being quite vocal in their opposition or at least difference in opinion to, to zelensky and that is damaging i think for the ukrainian cause as a whole because if zelensky can't go to other countries and and, and really speak with the full backing of Ukraine behind him, it's a lot harder to convince those countries to, to send him support if yeah. Ukraine is divided on its strategy. Um, I also think uh, this, this actually ties in with a podcast we did a few episodes ago about how Europe is preparing for a Trump presidency. Um, Macron, uh, French president, said something uh, just the other day, I think it might have even been yesterday, where he said, Europe has to be ready to defend and support Ukraine, whatever America decides. So basically mm -hmm. saying, regardless of if Trump is re-elected, we have to double down on our support for Ukraine. So there is that fear that that we are at a real inflection point now where support for Ukraine really could collapse. Yeah. But if you know Macron gets his way, he wants to see Europe really kind of fill in the gap if the US steps back from it. Um, but also one thing I hadn't thought about until you said it was that it's easy, possibly easy to be overly pessimistic um, mm. because when I think about all the, I don't know how many times Russia has kind of reshuffled and fired and rehired generals yeah. and commanders in its uh, campaign in Ukraine. Um, you know, we're talking about like one general falling out with Zelensky. And I think he replaces defense minister some point last year. Like this isn't the same kind of chaos that you see in the Russian ranks. So I think that is an interesting yeah, there. I just think on the, you know, again, on the, on the pessimism point, you know, we talk a lot about a Trump presidency and, and I've mentioned before on this podcast that actually it's unclear what Trump's yeah. Ukraine policy would be, but, but even if we accept that Trump would be at least like, uh, it'd be a difficult mm. like outcome for Ukraine. Um, we, I, we shouldn't forget that if Biden wins, then all of a sudden the prognosis looks very, very different for yeah. Ukraine. You know, that then all of a sudden, if you're Putin, you're looking at, four more years of steady, reliable support. I mean, mm. assuming no hiccups in Congress and the House of Representatives and all that sort of stuff. But you're looking at four more years of quite steady American support yeah. for Ukraine. And then all of a sudden your calculation, your calculus just changed completely. You're like, oh my God, can I afford really spending 6% of GDP 
you know, losing thousands of men a day, mm. um, all that sort of thing for the next four years, all of a sudden, you know, the, the compound effects of that really kick in. Um, yeah, and the other thing I say is that, again, it's very, very easy to be pessimistic about Europe's sort of independent ability to defend itself. And this has been most glaringly apparent in this whole shells debate. So obviously a, a, a very big determinant of basically like your attritional power in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine's respective attritional power, is just how many artillery shells you have. And at the peak of the counteroffensive, basically the Ukrainians were firing off about, about I think, 7,000 a week or 7,000 a day, maybe. Something like that. Um, I think 7,000 a day. Uh, but basically it was more than the Russians. And they, that was in part because they got this one-off infusion of shells from South Korea, about 750,000 mm. shells. Um, but that was a one-off infusion. And the Russians have basically moved to more of a war economy and are now producing something like 1 million shells a month, 1.2, something like that. And they also receive about 500,000 shells a year from, so no, 1 million shells a year. Um, and they also receive about 500,000 shells a year from North Korea. So they've got at least 1.5 million mm. shells a year. Um, the Ukrainians don't really have a domestic capacity for that. And Europe promised to basically send a million this year, mm. fallen way short of that. I think it was about 300,000, 400,000 by December. So they had, you know, it was the promise was made in March. So they had sort of three more months to get up to six, you know, to get yeah. up to a million, which obviously not going to get to. Um, and so it's very pessimistic about that sort of thing. Uh, but today, the European Commissioner, he's basically the de facto defence commissioner, mm. defence minister, uh, Thierry Breton, said that sure we haven't got the numbers, but we do expect to have the capacity, the production capacity yeah. to produce something like 1.4 million shells a year. Um, by basically 2020, so this year, by 2024. Mm. Um, and the Americans have already ramped up to, well, they expect to ramp up to something like 1.2 million shells a year by 2025, um, which is genuinely about like, it's about 10, what, eight, 10 times what they're currently producing. Mm. Um, and so like if, you know, in, in the best case scenario, Europe, this is from Ukraine's perspective, Europe rebuilds its defense base in anticipation and anxiety of a Trump presidency. You know, we get to that. Yeah desired um, shell capacity. And then we get a Biden re-election, which means that you're now, you now have a Europe with a domestic defense base and an America with a, you know, a, a basically an industrial base that already existed, obviously, um, supplying Ukraine. But, you know, that is the best case scenario. Yeah. And it's just that that is, everything is quite precarious and a mm. lot hinges on a whole load of contingencies, which are just way beyond UK, UK's yeah. control. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, again, I think it's easy to be too pessimistic mm -hmm. about it, but things are definitely slightly on the downhill. The one other thing I think is, is worth saying is that I think in the, you know, America still is the most important uh, supporter for Ukraine, even if its financial aid is yeah. actually outsized by the EU. But it, it just still is because of the like military technology and, you know, all that sort of shit, basically just because of the military yeah. tech. Um, but the i think a lot of the american like uh the, the the waning enthusiasm for ukraine is a symptom of the fact that america is just tied up in too many wars at the moment mm -hmm. and so if you're average american you know sh sh you might be enthusiastic about ukraine but once you see like i've oh, got ukraine we've got tensions in israel we've got renewed tensions in north korea we've got taiwan you know, all of a sudden you're feeling a bit tired. Yeah. And I think they all sort of get unfairly grouped into the same sort of like, Ugh, what are we doing with all these wars? Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that for long-term support for Ukraine to be politically sustainable, you just do need a calmer geopolitical environment elsewhere. Mm 
Um, and so, you know, if I was, if I was the Biden, this is just a little tip, Joe. <laughs> uh, if I was the Biden administration, I would be prioritizing trying to calm things down elsewhere. I mean, okay. they, they probably are to be fair to them, but like, that is the, uh, that I think that is, they feel like separate things, but actually like, I do think so much of like the attention and enthusiasm for, for Ukraine depends on their, it depends on it being able to dominate the headlines and yes. like being the war mm -hmm. as yeah. opposed to like being one of many wars. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that's that's my thing about it, you know. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't really end anywhere. <laughs> I also just the last thing I'll say is something I'm passionate is I do do think that there is a like I they're not like I I don't think moral, moral obligation is too sort of like strong and almost like soppy, but like it's just in Europe's interest to more actively support Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't cost us very much money, like in the grand scheme of things, I think when you take this Ukraine support facility, which has proven so politically controversial, 50 billion euros, yeah. and you spread it out over five years, you know, it's ten, roughly 10 billion euros a year. Yeah. You know, that is 0 0.07, 0 0.0. I mean, it's less than 0.1 of a percent yeah. of our GDP. Like, it is just something we can afford. Mm. Um, and you could, you know, if you could, I think Kai Kallas has talked about pushing it up to something like 0.25% of GDP or something like that, um, which is just not, it's just not a very big number. And I appreciate that like budgets are strained and that you might want to, yeah, you know, everyone has spending priorities. Yeah. Um, but that would be sort of decisive. That would be, I think, more than enough to guarantee at least a stalemate. Um, and I think that's just your, in your strategic interests. Like you forget the alternative, the worst case scenario is that you end up with a sort of like a, a you, a rump Ukraine that is dominated by Russia on NATO and EU border. Um, yeah. And that, that that would just be in every sense more costly. I mean, even just sort of like the, the amount of money you'd then just have to spend on NATO preparations, mm -hmm. you know, making sure you have a sort of bolstered Baltic flank, that would, that would outspend whatever you're gonna have to spend to keep Ukraine in like a stalemate or even in a, like a slightly positive attritional state. Um, so I just think it's short-termism uh, and like I understand there are competing spending priorities, but I, I do think that you're just forgetting what how, how costly the worst case scenario is. And we're talking about the kind of the negatives, the troubles that Ukraine are having right now. And then you're also saying about not overstating those troubles. Yeah. On balance, where do we land? Well, do we where? land in the middle? Do we land that things are still... It depends on Trump. It depends on spending. There's lots of things we can't anticipate. Or is it that things are getting notably better or worse on the whole, would you say? So I think, obviously, there are lots of things we can't anticipate. I think that's probably always true. I'm still taking this clip. And <laughs> yeah. It's coming back. <laughs> I think the consensus amongst well-versed analysts does seem to be, and this is one of my new favorite phrases, consensus mm. amongst well-versed analysts, because it just like pushes all responsibility <laughs> yeah. to like mysterious yeah. well-versed analysts. But the consensus amongst well-versed analysts does seem to be uh, that it's a nutritional battle, but at the moment, Ukraine is losing. In large part, as in they have slightly less attritional power, and they will be, over time, attrited by sure. the Russians. In practice, that probably doesn't mean very much on the ground. You know, the amount of territory they'll be retaken by the Russians will be very minimal. Both sides have really dug in, and, you know, the conflict has sort of, like, frozen a, a little bit. Yeah. You're not seeing massive counteroffensives, but at the moment, the Russians do have a manpower advantage, probably. Ukraine is struggling um, to recruit sufficient like conscripts, uh, and that is in part because obviously no one wants to go to Bakhmut for like super understandable reasons, mm. or the equivalent now is Avdivka. Um, but also, but there's been a dispute between again Zelensky and Zeluzhny over yeah. like 
how to modify recruitment processes, you know, whether or not they should lower the sort of um, non-reservist recruitment age, which is currently at 27, I think. Um, and yeah, and also you, you, Russia currently has an advantage in terms of shell production, although the recent comments from the EU suggest that that might change and maybe Ukraine will start having an advantage in shells. And then, uh, yeah, and then and money is the other thing. And again, that all just depends on... Yeah. But I actually think, yeah, and that, that depends on obviously European and American funding. But from Russia's perspective, so much depends on oil prices. Mm. And this just this ties in another little bit of... I mean, it's bringing back to oil. Oh, everything, everything comes, back, comes to oil. back to oil. But it's another reason that peace in the Middle East is so imperative from yes. both the American and Western perspective because further instability will mean higher oil prices. Yeah. And and that in turn will be good for I mean, not just Russia, but also like Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is another thing that has to be factored in. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that on balance, Russia has a slight power advantage. Um, and again, that won't make too much of a difference on the battlefield, but what it will make differences is in negotiations if they do happen. Yeah. Because obviously if you go into negotiations and you're Putin and you know, you know, the longer, you, bit by bit, you are treating down mm-hmm. Ukraine, then all of a sudden you, you just have this power and you can just wait for them to come to you. Whereas obviously if it, the balance of power is equal, or even if Ukraine is a tritting Russian forces, then all of a sudden the, the balance of power in those negotiations yeah. becomes very, very different. Um, so yeah, I think basically at the moment Ukraine is losing the attritional war, but there's reason for optimism, especially that comment from Breton today about European shell capacity. Um, and yeah, and also again, oil prices. Oil prices oil really, prices. really matter. They really matter, unfortunately. Always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts, Rory, or are you just agreeing with the well-versed analysts? Yeah, I shouldn't go against their consensus, <laughs> really. So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll align with them yeah, okay. on that. Good plan, good plan. <laughs> it's, it's such a good cop-out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Trump saying, many people are yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just say that. It. it makes me look an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's close with the world leader leaderboard. As always then, Rory and Zach have both prepared one person who they think has done well this week and one person they think has done badly this week who we're going to shift on our world leader leaderboard. An overall ranking of roughly where world leaders stand (laughs) in a very transitory and weird way. Um, Okay, let's start with you, Rory, Mm -hmm. and let's start with your winner of the week. My winner of the week... Um, possibly controversially is Joe Biden because he hasn't Ooh. had too many good weeks recently. He's sneaking okay. up off the bottom. Yeah, there's a, there's one. I, I, I put it, I'm putting him up for one reason, and that's because okay. um, this Iran-backed militia in Iraq called uh, I don't know how you say it, but Kataib Hezbollah. Yeah, Kataib. I uh, think. But... Well, there you go. Has announced that it's going to suspend its attacks on the U.S. forces in in uh, in Iraq, hmm. and this came after three U.S. Uh, servicemen were killed by drone drone attack. Um, this was that was in on the Jordan Syria border, so slightly different area, but you know within the same conflict. Um, so, in response to those three U.S. deaths, Joe Biden had been saying like, "We will respond. We're going to work out how we do it, and we'll do it when we want to do it." But this uh, this Iran-backed militia, without the U.S. even really responding, has said, "Yeah, we're going to stop this." And their actual reason was, or their given reason was, uh, in order to prevent embarrassment of the Iraqi government. Mm. Um, and this is only one militia, you know, there's, yeah. there's plenty of Iran-backed ones, but I think that is a positive sign for Biden that even without a mega response to these deaths, that at least one Iran-backed group has stepped back, and presumably they didn't do it on their own kind of volition, it was just maybe they had some words from someone in Iran telling them to calm mm. things down a bit, who knows, but yeah, I think that's a pretty good sign for, for Joe. 
I think also yet more evidence. This thing we've been arguing, well, I've been arguing on this mm. channel, this is like an editorial line, <laughs> that Iran does want de-escalation. Yes, yeah. um, I think that's really, really clear. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that is probably good news for yeah. old, old Joe. Zach, who's your winner of the week? My winner of the week is going to be Macron. Hmm. I just I just love putting him up. But I think he's, he's my one of the week for something we've just been talking about, which is that I think his calls for strategic autonomy look ever more prescient. Mm. And I also think that Breton's recent comments suggest that actually Europe is making strides in developing its defense industrial base, um, which is something Macron's been calling for for, for years. I mean, especially loudly yeah. recently, but yeah, for years. So I think he's winning that. Respect. I also think, and we talked about this a bit, maybe not on camera last podcast, but I do think his... Um, Sort of cabinet shakeup is the, yeah, it's cabinet, it's cabinet mm, yeah. yeah. His cabinet shakeup has sort of paid off. Like it has added at least like an aura of novelty yeah. and energy um, to what had previously looked like quite a tired administration. Um, so yeah, I think those are my those are my two things. Okay, um, yeah, nice. Unfortunately, now we need to do the less happy part. Uh, Rory, who is your loser of the week? Um, I hate to move him down, but it's Pedro Sanchez, Spanish Prime Minister. Okay. He's been pretty high up. He has. He's, um, he's doing well. So he's going down a rung. This is because uh, lawmakers in Spain's lower house, they, they uh, voted down the government's um, am amnesty law, amnesty bill, which would grant uh, amnesty to Catalan separatists who were being prosecuted because of the 2017 illegal referendum. Yeah. Um, so it, the interesting thing about this is that it was voted down because... The the most uh, what's the word the hardest line separatist group Junts voted against it even though mm. they were the ones who the bill were trying to win over. Um, they said it didn't go far enough because it didn't offer full protection against the range of other um, possible charges. Um, so they voted with the conservative opposition against this bill. Um, I think in the immediate term, I don't think it really matters too much for Sanchez because this bill will now go back to a parliamentary commission where they'll have more negotiations and try and kind of hammer things out. But I think what it does show is the real fragility of his position and his government's position because they he's only in power because he managed to win over this these Catalan separatist parties yeah. on the promise that he would introduce legislation that would grant them amnesty. Um, and yeah, so it's, it means every piece of legislation going forward, he needs to kind of cobble together this slightly weird mix of smaller parties, including Catalan separatist ones. Um, and that's just... You know, the, the fact that even this one, he couldn't get past mm. them, suggests that every piece of legislation is going to be difficult for him. Yeah. And it's always going to be a risk that they vote down. I guess ultimately it would be a budget or something that would collapse his government. But um, yeah, so that it just highlights how difficult his job for the next four or so years will be, yeah. I think. I often feel like when you're in the position he was in like a year ago, you just, just let the other side have yeah. it. Like it's clearly going to be difficult to govern. Yeah. Just let them have it but fall on their own such sword. such a... Uh, political survivor like yeah, through his whole is. career he's managed to pull off pretty crazy like comebacks <laughs> so this is just yes another one of those so yeah. maybe don't bet against him but yeah that's he's still on the top down. half of the board he's doing well yeah. he's, he's sliding um, Zach who is your loser of the week <clears throat> my loser of the week is going to be Victor Orban oh okay um, this is we did a video on this today but this is mainly apropos of this Financial Times report suggesting that the EU is considering trying to basically actively cripple Hungary's economy and specifically it's like ability to borrow money, uh, the Hungarian state's ability to borrow money um, if Hungary didn't sign off on the Ukraine aid facility that we've been talking about, on the Ukraine facility rather. Um, in a sense, it's not bad for Orban because it get, he sort of 
it bolsters his like anti-Brussels credentials. You know, mm. it plays well to his domestic base. It, there's also a sense in which it's like that he's brought the EU down to his level. You know, mm. like he's been using sort of uh, leveraging his veto, and now the EU are sort of like they're doing their own form of blackmail. Yeah. Um, but I think in the aggregate, it's bad for him because I think it is a testament to the fact that the rest of the EU really, really is fed up with yeah. him. Mm-hmm. I think that was fine a couple of years ago um, when I don't think there was a sense of sort of like geopolitical urgency mm. in the EU. But I think now that uh, mostly EU just wants to get stuff done and realize that you sort of really need to get stuff done if you want to sort of stay afloat in the like uh, ever more hostile like geopolitical world. Um I think that the patients were really wet thin. I think this was probably not the last like drastic effort you'll see from the EU um, to bring Orban on side. And I do wonder whether or not his uh, like current position in the EU is is sustainable. I mean, it's one of those things where like, I was like, oh, you can't actually kick him out and all that sort of thing. But I think this most recent thing has shown is that sure, you can't kick him out, but that there are things you can do. Yeah. Um, and so far the EU has been wary of like stooping to this, his level as it were, but I think that now sort of the gloves are off sort of yeah. thing. Um, I also think the other things work that we talked about in the video is that the Hungarian economy is in a pretty precarious position. And it's, you know, it's bolstered by the, the fact that Orban has played quite good, done quite a good job of like appealing to basically like Russian and Chinese economic interests and getting investment there, you know, BYD, that Chinese car firm are just opening a plant in Hungary. Um, but, the, the, there are some fundamental structural weaknesses, especially to do with the Hungarian public spending, which will make things quite difficult for Orban, especially if uh, there are other fiscal headwinds going Europe's way mm-hmm. in the next decade or so. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my Two loser my, of the week. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is how the board is looking at this stage. As always, let us know if you disagree with any of those decisions. If there's anyone you would move, where you'd move them, who you'd add to the board, let us know in the comments and. Someone might steal your idea on Monday. Um, That is all we have time for in today's issue. Issue? Like the newspaper again. Or issue, yeah, you're right. (laughs) So many old school TLDR references. Um, That's all we have today. That's all we have time for today. Uh, (laughs) They know what you mean. They know what I mean. All right, nice one. Good ending. (laughs) 